Hello, hello, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is known worldwide for helping data viz practitioners put on a show using the one and only Tableau. Stay tuned to find out who's popping the bubbly charts on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 65. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Oh my goodness. Hello and welcome to the 65th episode of the Present Beyond Measure show, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. I really miss getting to share the wisdom of my amazing guests. So luckily, I have a killer lineup waiting for you over the coming months, and I'll also be going solo to share snippets from the book along the way, which is due out, fingers crossed, by the end of this year. So if you're interested in being the first to know launch details about the book, plus exclusive goodies like bonus chapters, resources, and how to even be involved in the launch, then you can join my book waiting list at leahpika.com slash the book. I can't wait for you to join me on this very exciting new journey. Now, as always, I am extremely excited about today's guest that never changes. But in particular, I really had the privilege of connecting with some folks on the dashboard side of the equation in the data visualization world. And I've got several amazing experts in one of your favorite DataViz platforms lined up. That's right, Tableau. So I'm really excited to bring a guest I have been trying to catch in my net for the last few years. He finally said yes, so let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to today's episode. Today, I have with me one of the most celebrated practitioners and authors in the data visualization space today, especially when it comes to our favorite data viz tool, Tableau. He is the co-author of the Big Book of Dashboards, and he's not kidding, it is big. Here it is right here. He is a technical evangelist at Tableau, a columnist for Information Age, and host of If Data Could Talk. He's inspired thousands of people with technical advice and ideas on how to identify trends in visual analytics and develop their own data discovery skills. He's keynoted and presented at scores of conferences around the world. It's possibly likely you've seen him speak already. So I would love for you to help me welcome our latest and greatest guest, Andy Cotgreave. Hello. Hello. It is fantastic to be here. Yeah, that's that's quite an introduction. It, it just obviously means I must be quite old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been around for a while. No, yeah, it's certainly the longest. It's the longest I've ever been in one job in my life, but it turned out 
most of my career led me to this place. So, uh, well, yeah, that has to be a good sign, right? So first of all, you know, I've been a fan of yours for years, Andy, I'm so thrilled you're finally coming on the show, but I have to say as a lifelong Trekkie, I completely fangirled when I saw in your book that you took a photo with Brent Spiner, who famously played a character, an Android named data on Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. That was that's like amazing. That, I mean, that's uh, that like was, the pinnacle of a data career and a Trekkie obsession, like right there. Yeah, the, there's one photograph in the book, and it's a, it's me with Brent. That was a, a data conference five years ago, and they paid for him to come over and you know because <laughs> his character was data. He was great. It was amazing. Yeah, that must have been such a moment. But you know, a lot of people know what you do now, but. Everyone also loves a great superhero origin story. We would love to hear how you fell into this line of work. Yeah, well, I have to go back to when I was 18. So I'm going to try, we're not going to take the whole show talking about my career. But when I was 18, I left school with a place on an art foundation course. I wanted to go and draw comics. Then I went, I went to the Arctic for the summer. I was extremely lucky to go on an Arctic expedition and spend six weeks looking at glaciers. So I came back from that and I was like, don't want to do art. I want to do geography and look at glaciers. So that was the degree. Then I did a computer science conversion. Then I got a software engineering job as my first graduate job. And then eventually became a database administrator. Then spent a year bumming around New Zealand on a bike, doing journalism, guiding bike holidays. So talking to people, you know, managing things. Then start, went into sort of business research. And in that job, started playing managing their data as well. An access database. Oh, I love access. And from there, then went <laughs> yes. to be and started building my first dashboards in Excel in about 2006. Didn't know they were called dashboards at that time. And then became a data analyst at the University of Oxford. Discovered Tableau in November 2007. Joined Tableau in September 2011. Right now, so the origin story is of interest, I think, because I look at my job. I'm a data analyst who became an evangelist. To be a data analyst, what are the skills you need? You need technical skills, communication skills, programming skills, perhaps, project management, communication, bit of journalism, storytelling. And by some fluke, my entire career actually acquired all those skills. It wasn't by accident. So, you know, the question is, how did I fall into my job? I kind of fell into my career and followed my nose and ended up with what is a really, really great job. So you're like uh, Liam Neeson in Taken, where he's like, I have this unique set of skills that all combine <laughs> to make someone very unhappy. But in your case, no, I, I see what you mean. It really is such a diverse skill set that goes into being able to communicate data so well. It's fully right brain and left brain engaged. And on top of the skills that I would even throw in there are like mediation and psychology and little hairs of that as well. So, wow, what a, what an amazing journey. It, I, you're so right. To people listening who maybe want to go into the field and develop their skills, it's like you don't need that entire portfolio. You can be niche. But I think career advice to anybody, breadth of, breadth of skills, breadth of inputs of information just are going to be hugely beneficial. I absolutely agree. I believe in more the Swiss army knife approach to gathering skills rather than going extremely deep and specialized and because it just gives you a better adaptability to whatever opportunities are going to 
come your way, right? So I think that's that's great advice. Great way to start the show. So, all right, I'm dying to ask you, Andy, what is the biggest mistake that you see people making when they are presenting data? Like what really comes to mind first? I have to calm myself down now. <laughs> I spent many decades in meetings looking at people presenting data. And it was and I was in a meeting about four years ago and I realized the presenter was talking about the chart. And the chart on the screen was actually quite a complicated dashboard. And they were stuck at their podium and they the the slide had 10, 15 things on it, you know. I didn't know what to look at. And they went, as you can see, X is bigger than Y and Y is lower than Z. And because of this category, that's happened. And I, I was just, it, it was the epiphany. I was like, I literally have no idea what I'm looking at. I, I have, you're, you're telling me about things that are on the screen, but you're not actually indicating visually where I should look. And I actually, that, that presentation was an hour long. I just spent the entire hour writing notes about what this what was I was like well, hang on these are all the things that are obviously wrong and it was it was it was an amazing moment so I think having gone from that meeting and you know thought deeply about data and presentation you know there's many more mistakes right but I think the crime is if you put something on the screen and say look at and you say the words look at this bit and then you don't tell me what that bit is with some sort of indicator I'm like well I've got no idea what I'm looking at so I mean, I can feel myself getting angry, Leah. Uh, so, oh. I'm so sorry. Don't hulk yeah. out on me, okay? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't have a backup plan for that. <laughs> no, I, I completely understand. There are a lot of strange cultural habits we've adopted into our presentation scripts. Like when we go to our next slide and we don't know what it is because either we're not using presenter view or we haven't prepared in advance and people say, Oh, I put this in here because these are like the kiss of death words to me. <laughs> why are you justifying why you put something in here to us? And shouldn't it come across as more intuitive? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you the other one. If the slide comes up and they say, oh, it looked a bit bigger on my laptop screen. I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm not looking. I'm not sat at your laptop. I'm sat at the back of a big room. Did you not think? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, because it Solid just shows knowledge, they right? haven't, they haven't, <laughs> they haven't kind of paid that last bit of attention to think. Well, I'm delivering information, right? And everybody looking at that has no idea. And I don't know. It's, I just see it all the time, and you just think, but if you care enough, either turn the slide off or make the slide work, right? You know, do it without a slide would be much better in most situations. Yeah, you know, I get caught between asking if it's a matter of caring or just knowing because, you know, a lot of us grew up eating unhealthy food in some way. And then it takes a health crisis of some kind to be like, wait, what's going wrong here? But we don't, we don't know. Right. So I think that just there's, there's just so much lack of awareness that there is a certain way to go about things that engages a, an audience. And to your point, I actually want to touch on something you said. I have this philosophical debate I'm always running in my head, and I have my own position, but I'd love to know yours. How do you feel about practitioners presenting dashboards, like just throwing a dashboard up on a screen during a live meeting, sometimes in lieu of a linear presentation deck? 
So dashboards are designed for small screen or even a cell phone, a smartphone these days. They're designed for consumption when the individual is, you know, their eyeballs are close to their screen and and the, the user of the dashboard kind of is in control of the flow and moving their mouse around, right? So a dashboard is fundamentally not designed for a big screen. Thus, you have to take the steps to ensure your audience know what you're talking about. So imagine we've got a dashboard with three KPIs at the top and, I don't know, four charts, right? So if I go, okay, Leo, here's the dashboard. The KPI for uh, podcast listeners is going down this month. I'm like, okay, at this point, you, I as the speaker, have to draw your attention to that part of the dashboard, right? Now, the thing I recommend, everybody should have this piece of kit I'm holding up now, which is the Logitech Spotlight. Uh-huh. I don't get commission. I do not yes. get, yeah, I do not get commission for selling these. But this is a <laughs> clicker that will put a spotlight on your screen. It's it's just a brilliant presenting tool, and it, even better in lockdown and remote meetings. You know, just genius piece of kit because that means I can do any presentation. I can bring up any spontaneous visualization image, and I can instantly spotlight. You know, and this beat laser pointers are awful because. To use a laser pointer, you have to turn around. Often on the projector screen, sometimes they don't appear. And if you've got two or three TVs behind you in the meeting room, it's like, well, you're only going to choose one to point at. And so that's going to disappoint the other audience. So you can show dashboards, but you've got to appreciate nobody knows what the heck they're looking at, right? And so it's about taking people's eyes to the part of the dashboard that you are talking about and zooming in if you can uh, and, yeah, like that. So... Yeah, be careful with the dashboards on screens. Yeah, I want to highlight something you said that's so important. And this goes for dashboards or slides, charts, whatever. It's not just about showing something. It's focusing their attention because we have squirrel brains. (laughs) And the second there's too much to look at where our attention isn't focused, You've lost any control over where everyone is looking. And this is why I'm in 100% agreement with you. Not only for me as a dashboard, too much and not meant for a large screen, but it's really meant for self-consumption. If it's constructed in an effective way, it's designed to empower a lay user, you know, not business side user, to understand the vital systems of the business, like a car, and make very basic decisions on their own, and even prompt more questions that that warrant deeper analysis. But when you're putting all of that in front of a person, and then you start talking, it's it's like, I want to point out, like, you know, they're not listening to you anymore, right? They're trying to take the whole thing in yeah. at once. I- you know, sometimes I, I bang on about this at work and to people who will listen to me. So, hi, everybody listening. And now, now <laughs> your sure audience is engaged. Yeah, now your audience are engaged in this. But I sometimes think people, oh, yeah, Andy, you know, why? why? Why is this important? And I think, why are you standing in front of these people? You are going to try and inform them about something, share some insight, and persuade them to make a change, right? You know, if you're not doing those things, I mean, I don't know why you're standing in front of people. So, therefore, you should care. That what you're set, what, what what people are seeing matches the passion that hopefully you're bringing to that presentation. And I often say, you know, imagine an Apple developer keynote and Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs putting a crappy chart on the sl- on the screen. I mean, it would just 
it just wouldn't happen. Right. Like, it'd be hilarious to see it, right? There'd be you know, major he, interventions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because he knew that in order to sell, sell, you know, sell Apple, sell the brand, sell the change, it's like the visuals have to match the words. Anything else is you'll make it, as you say, you're making your audience turn off, just be distracted. So, yes. I agree. And you know, I want to I want to give some love to the practitioners, listeners, presenters. I don't think people realize how important they are as presenter. They kind of come in as the sort of delivery mechanism for the deck, like the deck is the important part, but I think even a strong enough presentation if it's just given by a person with a really compelling way of storytelling and a command and a presence, that is going to be more powerful. It's just that we use visuals to more powerfully communicate, but the you're the star, like you're the reason why they, you have the expertise they're coming for and all of that. So I just want to lock that in for people. I don't think they understand how vital they are to the equation. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, you know, I've been I was lucky to get presentation training in my first graduate job so over 20, yeah, 25, quarter, quarter of a century ago. Last year. And, uh, no, 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 no. And, you know, that, that training was so important. And I, I'm, I feel like I've got to the stage now I, I can turn on the presentation voice and understand when to bring the voice down and pause before going back up again. And, and you know, you can see it in the audience that when you when you do it properly and you do it well, it's like, yeah, I could be. Could be talking about anything. Could be talking about coffee cups, right? And uh, yeah, so but it takes to everyone starts somewhere, and then that just takes practice, 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 and yes. developing that uh, muscle. Practice, guidance, knowledge, absolutely. Yeah, and feedback. Lots of feedback. And feedback. Get, get lots of feedback. <laughs> absolutely. So there's another habit that I see, and I'd love your take on this too, is when people copy and paste visuals right out of an analytics tool like Google Analytics, right into a live presentation. What do you think about this? I'm already intuiting. <laughs> well, it's slightly similar to the dashboard thing, right? But I've imprinted on my memory that somebody had copy and pasted a chart into the slide and then said, oh, this chart looks a bit small. It looked bigger on my laptop. But as you can see, our sales targets across EMEA, across Europe, bigger next year than they are this year. I was like, I can't see that. I took that <laughs> I, I, I took that person's slide deck and I was like, I started a stopwatch and I was like, how long does it take actually take me to decipher what it was the person claimed this chart showed? It took me 90 seconds, right? It, and it wasn't, a, it was a bar chart with some circles on it. So it was quite a simple chart, but it still takes time to pass. And then so the two of us worked on it and it was like, how can we design this chart so it can be understandable in seconds? Right. And then what, so what are the changes you make? When you copy and paste something from Google Analytics or Tableau, you're copying and pasting something probably with an eight or 10 point font. Guess what? Nobody can read That's that in right. the back of the room, right? <laughs> You've built that chart. So you have justified every pixel on it, right? So you don't need to know that the circle means next year's target and the bars means this year's target. But you put it on a screen, nobody knows what they're looking at. There's just orange and blue circles. So how do you communicate that? Now, the way we changed that chart, we put in a, a, a really obvious title, which the, the, the title was the question. You know, our, no, it was the statement, actually. It was like, our, our targets are going up next year. But we used color encoding in the title to indicate as the color legend. So there was blue and circle dots, and there was blue and circle in the title so to refer to the two things it made. 
right? So it's just about thinking, I'm taking this chart. If I copy and paste it, I'm copying and pasting something designed for a small screen. How can I make sure the person at the back of the room knows what that chart says in half the time that it's going to be on the screen for? And that's something I really had a, a slight epiphany about because I remember reading Seth Godin saying, you know, charts, oh, he was talking about Charles Bernard's chart, the famous Napoleon's March chart, which is on my mug for those of you watching. And he's like, this is a rubbish chart. Sharks should be digestible in a matter of seconds. And I'm like, no, that's absolutely 100% wrong. You can show a very complicated chart on the screen, but you have to reveal it, explain it, and build up the story and bring the user along step by step so that they can get the insight from it, right? And, you know, I've done that with Menard's chart. It takes about three to four minutes to describe it fully. And then I show a pie chart version of it, which can be understood in a matter of seconds about how many soldiers died. So, yeah, I can't even remember what the question was, Leah, but that was, <laughs> you, you got me in full rant no, mode about pulling <laughs> About pulling data visuals from tools. And, you know, you're, you're making an interesting point. I've heard different opinions and I've had different experiences with presenting complex charts to a lay audience where it's really like walking a high wire. You can so thrill them with some the novelty and also some deeper insight they are not used to seeing. And you can also just fall, <laughs> plummet to confusion. And for example, my audience may be aware of this, but I'm publishing my first book this year, following your Congratulations. footsteps. Congratulations. Thank you. And one of the things I, one of the techniques I talk about is for when I give kind of a list of very effective non-standard charts. They're not terribly complex, but they're not something someone's going to be fluent in. And I give a technique where I'm literally showing one piece of this chart as, at a time, walking someone through a tutorial of that chart rather than displaying the whole thing at once. And I did this once with a dumbbell dot plot with voice of customer data that it was a very complex ask. And I was like, I don't know how we're going to do this. And that was perfect. But luckily, the way we stepped through it, it made everything so clear and we were able to backtrack if needed so people didn't get lost. What's your perspective on training people on charts, essentially? Well, I think uh, really important. One of the things I do in some pro when I'm presenting about presenting data is I, I show a slide with a really complicated scatter plot on it. It's got 180 marks. There's a bunch of sizes, loads of different colors no title. And I'm like, is this too complicated for a presentation? Yes, Andy, it is. And then it's like, okay, well, let's watch two minutes of Hans Rosling. And then we play two minutes of Hans Rosling's 2006 TED Talk. Essentially, so the scatter plot I show is the scatter plot he shows. And, you know, so if anybody's not seen this TED Talk, just do go and watch it because it is absolutely, you know, he, he brings 180 dot scatter plot to life through animation and through his presentation, his movement, his language, his humor, his drama. And it's just an absolute masterclass. It takes him a bunch of time to explain the chart and then a bunch of time to narrate the story. And you're like, well, I've just learned something about the world. So you can do it. And again, the reveal stuff is really, really clever. In fact, I want to ask you a question. When you do a reveal, do you start with, what do you do first? Do you do the axes first or the marks first? Definitely the axes, because I'm trying to explain, I'm trying to create 
a playing field. It's like if you're explaining the rules of a sport, I find it easier to explain how the field is set up and what the goals are, the dimensions, and then actually put the data, which is actually creates anticipation because people are like, oh, now that I get this, what's the result? What's the result? Now, yeah, so have you come across a website called slowrevealgraphs.com? No. No. So I don't I, know I, how, I, but... <laughs> right. So it's run by a math teacher in the US, and what she does is she completely inverts it, and it's it's I've not I've not tried this thing, but she she shows here are all the bars, right? So no no the axes are there, but there's no labels, no title, and, and you know so there's a, there's one bar that's bigger than another, for example. So it's like hey everybody, like what what does this mean? So then I mean they're, t- they're doing this to kids, but you can do this to grown-ups, and the kids are going well. There's one thing that's bigger than another. Da, 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 da. And then she'll show one axis without ex- just the numbers and be like, oh, it's a billion compared to a million. It's like, oh, something, something's, something, is that money? And then, so she completely does it the wrong, the other way around. And finally, I mean, the example I remember is spending on police departments in across the US states. And, you know, you just got these crazy outliers. And that method is so compelling because it forces you to be like, what am I seeing in the data? You know, so you're talking about this. Well, you know, one thing's over uh, outlying, and that means all that, there's a long tail. And then, you, and then piece by piece, you're like, wow, it's police spending. It's really good. So yeah, go check that out. You know what I I love about this is every time I have a perspective on how I do things, I get to see the benefits of doing it a completely different way. Where I understand that now the beauty of the reveal is withholding the context. So create, you're opening a story loop where it's like a story starts and you're desperate to finish it. That's what the power of story loops are. Works great for like email subject lines and, and things like that. And I use it for observations on chart titles by starting a story loop, finishing with an ellipsis, and I leave a space open for a future graph, which I bring in and I close the story loop. But that is so interesting that you can create the story loop by removing the actual context for the data. That's brilliant. You've just articulated it in a really, really clever way because the theory oh, thank of you. story is, yeah. That's what it, I do. <laughs> it's, it's trying to articulate, trying to apply the theory of storytelling to data visualization has been, you know, a big trend. And what you're, you've been working on for years. <laughs> right. It's been big trying in the field. Trying to capitalize on it. But, but I hadn't, I'd never thought about it in that way it's like yeah but the slow reveal grass way is you start with a punchline and bring you back and the the more traditional way that most of us do is build a playing field and then give you the data last that's fantastic I, i can't wait to check that out see how to apply it you talked about color you touched on this is one of my favorite subjects in the field of data viz and in your book you rightfully assert that color should not be used to spice up a dashboard, which is what many people want. You know, it's not decoration. It's a tool for highlight and emphasis. Now, here is one place I've struggled when it comes to dashboards, because when you're taught to tell stories with data in like a linear slide format, you're taught to set all the data to a baseline gray color, which creates like a backdrop for the data. And then you use a standout color like blue or orange to emphasize a particular data point. How does that translate to a dashboard? Would a dashboard look really grim if it's all gray and then you have to kind of dynamically use color as the data changes because you're not painting the data story in a dashboard, right? It's this evolving, changing 
entity? Yeah, the short answer is some of the most beautiful dashboards I've ever seen are just gray and the highlight color. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I think it, when you pair back the design, it really, well, when you pair back the color, it can be really helpful. Now, in the book, the, the, the dashboard that is shown on the front cover of the book, that's one of Jeff Schaefer's dashboards. That's gray and blue. That's only gray and blue when you look at the one in the in the in the book. There's another one in the book by Matt Chambers. It's gray and blue, right? You know, and as you interact and change parameters, the blue shading grows or shrinks. And the reason the reason it's a really good discipline to minimize the colors down as far as you can go is because it, it creates a creative constraint that really forces you to pass and consider what do they actually need to see. Right. When you don't think about that, then you're like, well, I'll just throw a color legend on here and a gradient over there. And you're like, well, you know, maybe maybe that was the right way to go. Right. Maybe it was. But it becomes too easy. It's so easy to add color to any visualization that if you start going, I'm not going to, but I have to make it still look good. Then I think that's a good system. And, and so really only add color when you have to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that. You know, I'm known. I'm well known for it depends. It's, it's there behind me. It says it depends because I can't. I, I can't tell you definitively whether you should use one color or twenty. But I'd lean to fewer colors. But there's a there's always time when you might need lots of colors. But you can do one color dashboards. Oh yeah, no, I 100% agree. I always feel color should carry meaning. That's what makes it a tool rather than a decorative element where I once worked on a dashboard where literally every chart and every line and every marker on the lines were all different colors. It looked like rainbow sherbet. <laughs> it was very interesting. And none. there was absolutely no meaning to those colors. So I guess even in a dashboard, if you're working with related metrics, they can be shades of a similar color and then you're using color to separate out segments or, but the point I think you're saying is use it to communicate something. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise yeah. it's a rainbow. <laughs> rainbow Sherbert. <laughs> what about, what are some of the dashboards that impress you? Because I mean, look, you, you, you know, a thing or two about this. So I'm always curious, like what makes you stand up and go, wow, they nailed it. In the world of data visualization, there is an operational business monitoring dashboard, right? That, that's that's what the book's about. That's a big chunk of it. And then at the other end, you've got absolute blingy data art. I mean, to the point that it's just a piece of art, right? It's just not even really sharing insight, but it's data visualized as for art. And then along the way, you've got a spectrum that takes in infographics, you know, jazzy, tableau public style, woohoo, you know, shiny, shiny things all the way to art. And they're all wonderful. They're all part of this brilliant tapestry that is in this field. And they all have appropriate places. For a dashboard, you are trying to get the most insight into the right people's eyes via the right the medium that is most relevant for them, desktop, mobile, paper, so that they can get the insight and take know what actions to take in the shortest time possible. Right. So that you know, we we didn't really define what a dashboard is in our book. I mean, we did, but we just were like, eh, something to monitor understanding. What's more important is that goal. A dashboard should get the right information to the right audience in the right method so that they can get the insight as quick as possible, right? Therefore, 
you've got to be super duper careful with the shiny things you put in your dashboards. You know, it's like it's boring bar charts, lovely line charts, simple color. You know, as you as you said, color for meaning and nothing else. Interaction super simplified. Titles have to be crisp. If you've got interactivity, is it obvious how to interact with your dashboard? One of the things with Tableau dashboard, or in fact with all dashboards, is you know, as a Tableau user, I can build really, really sophisticated interactivity, which is hidden because you have to click on a mark or you have to click on interact. But then if you come to my dashboard and you've never seen it before, it's like, well, how do you know you can do that, right? So the tricks to great dashboards are those that are crisp and pure and austere, simple grid layouts. Now, so the question was, are there any that I've seen that are amazing? Well, yeah, I've seen many amazing dashboards. Most of them are kind of kept behind customers' doors, customers' things. But I think one thing I could recommend to watchers and listeners is Mark Bradbourne, who works at Tableau. He's He started a project called Real World Fake Data. So he was seeing those projects like Makeover Monday, Sportsman Sunday, all these brilliant skill growth projects, but they lean towards shiny, attractive visualizations. And, you know, what we know at Tableau a lot is customers look at that and think that's how the business dashboard should look. It's like, no, 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 no. So what what real world fake data does, Mark is creating fake data sets around an industry, an industry. uh, And he's like, well, okay, let's not do Makeover Monday. Let's build a business dashboard using this data. It is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, it, it's, I mean, you know, we, we can now use this in our selling cycles because you can go, look, here's loads of business dashboards. Here's the versatility of Tableau on a single data set. And they're all grids, KPIs, big ass numbers, and they're simple and plain. And so it's great. So no one dashboard, but lots of real world fake data ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And it's great for to find a place where people can get inspired and test things out. And you know what, I I like what you're saying is that you're seeing a general characteristic for effective dashboards. They're intentional, they're well-constructed, austere, I I like that word, they're well-organized. They're not out to impress, they're out to inform, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is the question of the dashboard consumer, because in working with a lot of data practitioners in this field, I often find that they are getting requests or demands for dashboards looking exciting and snazzy. And, you know, do you find that consumers ever negatively influence that final product because they're trying to give them what they want? Not necessarily. So like if a VP wants 12 pies on one screen and all of their 10 brand colors incorporated, you know, it's 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 more like a poster no, that's not the the right word but it's it's less a data product and more like a placard of the brand in yeah. some way yeah I, it's that's it's such a hard thing it's you've got several issues going on there people want shiny things right i think actually here's a great book the design of everyday things right by don norman classic in design about you know so it's a design engineering book but oh that sounds it, like thought, my favorite yeah, book It's really good. In it, he talks about how important it is to make things look good. In fact, I'm going to read a quote because I love this. Engineers and other logical people 
tend to dismiss the visceral response, i.e. something looks good, as irrelevant. Engineers are proud of the inherent quality of the work and dismayed when inferior products sell better just because they look better. Right. I find that joke hilarious, partly because it's quite an insult to most engineers. I think since you wrote this 20 years ago. I I'm think, the daughter of engineers and I a little bit resonate with that. Yeah. I, well, I think, but you think, if you think Apple engineers appreciate what good design right. is. Right? I, so right. I, think, I think in 2021, that's slightly outdated. But you do have to make something viscerally appealing. It has to look good. Right. But it doesn't have to be your corporate purple. Now, the other thing is then people say, oh, you see, I want the 12 pies because I want to be able to compare it to dinner, right? And then, so that until they've seen prototypes of what they want and what could, uh, you know, prototypes and things that might be slightly different to what they look like, they're trying to articulate something they may not be expert in articulating. You know, even I, if I try and describe the dashboard I want to monitor the thing I need to monitor tomorrow, my verbal description is going to be way off the mark, right? So they'll go, yeah, I want 12 pies to compare the 12 months of the year. You know, okay, so then we'll show you the 12 pies. You go, okay, Mr. CFO or Mrs. CFO, does this answer your question? Oh, no. Right? So I think, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, so I think there's, a, there's a big part that people think I they want you. something until they actually see it. Now, but then you still, I, I mean, you probably know, you still don't meet the resistance where I want the 12 pies, goddammit. At which point you're like, okay, well, you know, you're the boss, so I can give you that. But my recommendation to get around this is that why do you want the 12 pies? Because then I want to do X and Y. Why do you want to do X and Y? Because of Y and Z. Why do you want to do that? And, it, and you know, as doing that five whys process, you'll eventually get to what they really want. And that's what you build. Absolutely. I think curiosity is one of the most underutilized tool in this field of helping. We often take what stakeholders ask for at face value because there could be power dynamics. We're afraid to upset the apple cart and all of that. But sometimes I found that I actually began to establish myself as with higher credibility and trustworthiness by just putting the brakes on for a second before saying, okay, yes, master, you know, and then saying, no, why? Help me understand just because the way I would approach it is this way. And then sometimes I'll even present them with two different versions and I'll quiz them and say, hey, which one answers your question faster? What do you think? And sometimes that can be the, the shift that they need. And sometimes to your point, you have to just detach and say, okay, this is what they want. However, I'm gonna have this little back pocket dashboard that I'm gonna use that's going to communicate and, you know, you just make sure the insights are super clear. That's a yeah, tough one. Absolutely. It is. So one of the things I love about your book in particular, and my, my eight-year-old son is becoming a bit of a data viz buff himself, which is very exciting. So he loves to look at all the charts in these books, but he loves the scaredy cat. I think that's what <laughs> you guys have like yep. renamed it to. <laughs> yeah. Which is this like, and I think the scaredy cat is actually named after a line chart that has gone like, is way too spiky and is kind of hard to read. If I'm not mistaken, that was the the origin or I'm totally wrong. I'm not sure that was, but I don't want to correct you because that sounds like a better origin story than the one I might tell. So let's go with that. Yes, you're dead right. That was exactly <laughs> Perfect. Wonderful. Yeah, but it acts like a signpost in your book for 
denoting visualizations that you encourage people to rethink or avoid. So what are some of the visualizations that you can think of? You know, pie can be an obvious one, but what do you think some people are using and, and not knowing they're kind of setting themselves up for a trap? Yeah, well, I think we, we've touched on some of it. Too much color is obviously uh, an interesting one, but, you know, controlling your axes, making truncating axes when they shouldn't be. I mean, even truncating an axis when it could be truncated, that's still a conscious decision you have to make because you're going to you're going to tell a different story if you truncate an axis. And depending on the story you want to take, tell that might that'll be an issue. Too many encodings on a single visualization. You know, a pre-attentive attribute. We can tell different shapes. We can tell different sizes. We can tell different colors. We can tell. Uh, yeah, but if I build you a scatter plot with different shapes, colors, and sizes, oh no, they don't work together. So having that appreciation of how pre-attentive attributes work together or don't work together is really useful. Then uh, really just charts that, dual axis charts, that's another one. Dual axis charts can be awesome, but they can also be really confusing. So if you imagine a dual axis chart with one line going up and one line going down, we are fixated on that crossover point, right? But if your scales are different, that, that crossover point might be arbitrary. So it's things like that, it's all about drawing the eye to the insight you want the audience to get to. And beyond that, it can get a bit scaredy cat. You know, it's funny. I, I teach the same exact thing around dual axis charts. And even right now, I feel like I can hear a collective global groan of everyone listening going, no, don't take that away. But people don't realize, you know, Office, Excel or whatever invented it. They just gave you a way to put two different measures on the same chart with different scales and said, hey, do that. And no, no one's really thinking about what's actually happening mechanically from a visual yeah. perspective. So yeah, yeah. totally I mean, they on board. Can, they can work. But again, it's all these things. It's, you know, I think the, the, going back to it depends, you, you know, my path, again, talking about career, the first time I got into data visualization, I extremepresentations.com do this thing called the chart chooser. I don't know if it's just, it was the simple sort of spider grind going, okay, what questions do you have? And then at the outside was 16 different chart types to answer those 16 different kinds of questions. Blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind because I was like, what does these chart things have, have this structure? It was the first time I'd ever realized there was some sort of language and, you know, a process to it. It was amazing. So that was on my cubicle wall for years. And then over time, you begin to realize, well, hang on. A lot of those were kind of arbitrary choices, and I might choose this <laughs> one over here. Yeah. But from a pr progression of career, I think it's so important to understand understand the rules, and then at some point you will realize the rules are merely guidelines, and then at some point the only thing you can ever say is it depends. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. I love that. You grow to know less the more you know. Oh, God, absolutely. You know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm far less certain about any answer to any question 14 years, 15 years into this than I was, you know, after three years. That's totally oh true. Oh, my gosh. You're so right. I knew everything when I was 25, everything. And now, nothing. <laughs> I resonate with what you're saying around the encodings. And one thing I loved in a Scott Baranato's book, he's at the Harvard Business Review. He wrote Good Charts. Love that book is he when he talked about color in particular, he said, use color only as a, the lowest common denominator 
of distinguishing something. So oftentimes in bar charts, we'll color the different bars just because they're different members of that chart. Uh, and we'll even shade, you know, we overlay a lot of signals to say this is different from that, but we don't realize we only need to use one encoding to do that, right? So that really resonates. Now, on dashboards, let's go back to dashboards. So I see still radial gauges and thermometers, and I'm curious about your perspective on some of these very dashboard-centric visualizations. I uh, no, I don't <laughs> like gauges. Say no more. Are you familiar with? Are you familiar with sort of a, the election coverage concept of a swingometer? Do they have those in the US? Talking about the swing from one party to another. I haven't seen anything like that. No. Okay. So in the UK, it it's in the UK, all our elections have been covered with a swingometer going. I mean, it's a hangover from the two-party system. Was you got Labour's and Conservative, and you know this constituency has swung 6% to Labour or X percent to the Tories, right? Great. But, oh, I just went, I got, I went in a rage during our last election because because a gauge, you know, to make it visually interesting, you need, the gauge is always in the middle and every time they show a constituency, it's like, okay, 3% swing. It's like, well, that's not very visually interesting. So they go 8% swing and the gauge is most of the way to the to the horizontal line. But that year, the Tories trounced the Labour. So it was like 8% swing, 20% swing. And they were all in exactly the same position on the scale. So you're like, oh, no. I mean, that's not even a dashboard kind of gauge because at least the dashboard gauge has a consistent scale. But you can't tell what the scale is. The, the ends of the scales are mostly arbitrary. And they take up a huge amount of space. Now, that's not bad on a TV screen where they've got to fill the space with something visually appealing. So it's, like, it's, it's a really visually strong image. But on a dashboard, you why not just make it a line with a progress indicator? And then you've got loads right, more space like to show something else. Yeah, so don't do gauges. <laughs> I think I, I don't even think it depends. I, I just think don't do gauges. I mean, even more even more than pie chart. You can use a pie chart every now and then, but no yeah. gauges. Well, the Andy has spoken. Don't do gauges. <laughs> yeah, so in lieu of something like that, if someone wants to show – Performance, but then again, some kind of target is a, a bullet graph, something they can use? Well, a bullet, a bullet graph is great. The challenge you have, right? So here's the challenge. So Stephen Few invented bullet charts, what, 2005, 2010? Bullet charts are extremely space efficient, very well visually encoded means of showing progress to a goal. The problem is most people don't have a clue how to read them, right? <laughs> right. Uh, they look at that and I don't know what I'm seeing. So you have a challenge that, you know, again, that's the tension of data visualization. You've got to know your audience. You know, can you can you educate them to read bullet charts or can you not? In which case do you pull back? I mean, a progress bar, something that looks like a progress bar is kind of all right. Generally, you know, again, with caveats. But yeah, you know, bullet charts are amazing if you know how to read them. This is why I always say that charts especially are like scalpels. If you go in and you have no surgical training, you can hurt or kill someone, but when you have, is it the scalpel's fault or is it the skills that were used to wield it, right? So, you know, I just had an idea pop in where kind of using your slow reveal method that you mentioned, 
where you could show a graph with like a list of salespeople or sales regions or something, and they each have performance targets or quotas. And you're putting the target lines first to just establish, because that's information they may already know. They may already know, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. This is what each person's respective goal is. And then you bring the actual data in. So they're not seeing both markings at the same time, which might confuse them because that's unfamiliar, but you're leveraging that anticipation to start with something familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah you're right. It's, it's, I like the analogy of a scalpel. Um, <laughs> these two, the, all the tools enable you to do so much. Yeah. And without knowing the basics, you can do a lot of damage. And the amazing thing is data literacy is not, it's not hard. It's really, it's really basic information. It's just not really part of the school curriculums, which would be really nice to change. That's right. If you're listening, colleges, but it's it's so true. You know, I look through my book and there's nothing about coding in R or Python or incredibly in complex database work. It's actually so simple, but there's a lot to learn about it. It's a very cost cross disciplinary uh, field, right? Very cool. All right, so we've arrived at our next segment called The Upgrade, which is a tool, a resource, a book, something that Andy absolutely is loving right now that he thinks our listeners would absolutely love to check out. You can't mention Tableau. That's kind of too obvious. So what do you got for us? <laughs> Far too obvious indeed. So I'm going to recommend uh, my favorite data book of the current period. Uh, Tim Harford is a famous economist in the UK, presents more or less on BBC and is the undercover economist at the Financial Times. And this book is brilliant. It's almost in the in the style of How Charts Lie by Alberta Cairo or Factfulness by Hans Rosling. And it's just, it's a really, really good take on the whole way of trying to be a, a knowledgeable consumer of information, you know, in, in the world of social media, disinformation, government statistics. It's brilliant. It's really, it's really, really good. In the UK, in the US, it's called The Data Detective, which is Ooh. challenging to try and do a book tour because you don't know which continent you're on. But anyway, How to Make the World Add Up or Data Detective by Tim Harford. Brilliant. Oh, that sounds amazing. We'll have to definitely put that on the list. And, you know, since we are, you know, mentioning Tableau, is there anything that is really exciting you about that particular tool right now? Because I know many of my listeners use it. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we just talked about education. You know, we have an amazing academic program. So any students or professors can get hold of Tableau for free. We've got loads of resources. So I think that that's you know, that program's been going for a while, but it's really good if you haven't heard of that. So that's the Tableau for teaching. We launched the data literacy, free online data literacy course not too long ago. That's great. You know, really good way to start that, get that foundation. And then on the nerdy level, in the last release, we did quick level of detail calculations, right? So now if you don't know Tableau, that probably doesn't mean much, but it's a way of doing incredibly well, advanced aggregations of data, which are very simple to say, but very hard to program in any tool, but we give you them in just a couple of clicks. So if you think about percent difference sales compared to last year, but at the national level, you know, 
I mean, God, it's, I, I really want to see that at the on my dashboard. And then your analyst goes, oh, holy cow, the percentage difference <laughs> annually at regional level, but we're showing state level information on the dashboard. Oh, my God, that's good. Okay, I'll be back in three weeks. So we've added a way to really, boom, get to that answer really quickly. So that's cool. So like a really multi-layered filter that isn't just allowing you to look at one slice or another. Well, well right, let's get in the weeds because this is fun. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a calculation. So, you know, what is the sum of sales? But the level of detail, what that means is if my visualization is showing, say, sales by store across the entire map of the world, you know, that's very granular. But you want to compare it at the level of detail of the nation, the national level. So then it's, it's about specifying at what level you want the calculation on independent of uh, what level of granularity you've got in the chart. Oh my gosh, I could have used that 10 years ago. Honestly, it's one of those things, you know, LOD cards came into Tableau maybe four years ago and it just opens up the analytical space hugely. And now we now they're much more clickable. So I like Well, those. if if you're a Tableau enthusiast, You'll have to check that out when it's available. And that's a really great tip. Love that. All right, Andy, this is our final question. So think very hard here, okay? I want you to imagine this very plausible scenario. You're in the final rounds and about to win Terraforming Mars, the board game, at the World Board Game Championship when, you know, the lockdown's over. Yeah. When all of a sudden you trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. Do you remember what you're presenting about? And more importantly, what advice would you give to that person? Wow. Terraforming Mars is a great game. I'm just... uh, (laughs) There's going to be an episode of If Data Could Talk either imminently or already released, which is about board games and data visualization with one of the leading board game designers in the world. So we talk about Terraforming Mars. Anyway, my first presentation that I can remember was when I was writing writing software for primary school children uh, in the UK. One of the pieces of software I wrote was a spreadsheet. And I wrote an amazing calculation engine. That was good. I'm very proud of that. But we really encouraged kids to do 3D charts using that tool. So <laughs> I might have, I might. I mean, this was the leading primary software in the UK. So I might have been accidentally responsible for a lot of children's love of 3D pie charts. I apologize. Oh, Andy. Right I know the damage oh, I did. But I, I did a presentation for uh, people who were developing tools for that PC. Advice that I would have known is silence is fine. You do not need to fill silence with so or like or you know or um or uh. Silence actually makes you sound more authoritarian or not authoritarian, authoritative, <laughs> right? It actually makes you sound more clever. So silence is good. And then practice, 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 practice. One of my superpowers about the way I present is that I'm always encouraging people to throw me off and take me on tangents. And I love going down a tangent, but I, I can do it because I know my script so well that if I've gone down a tangent, I know how to get back to the main path. What I found is if you try and do that when you don't really know your notes, you go down a path and then you're like, I have no idea where I was. So you fumble around trying to get back to your flight. So there you go. Practice and don't 
practice and no stop words, right? Stop words, but filler words, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, to your point, I'm a big proponent of practicing. I feel that people who wing it can only do that if they're operating at such a high level, advanced level. And for me, what practicing does is it leads me to a fluency in the language of my content so that if someone does throw me off or take a tangent, you're still speaking in this language that you're fluent in versus you're asking Google Translate to translate everything that you're saying because you actually don't grasp the fundamentals of the language, right? It's, it's absolutely right. I mean, I could go on about this forever. I mean, one last anecdote. I, I actually became a magician about eight years ago because I got fascinated by the whole cognitive science of magic and how it overlaps with the cognitive science of data visualization, right? But then becoming a magician made my speaking skills, I mean, just took them to, leveled them up because if you think, I'm going to do a magic trick and I know all the procedures I need to get all the cards in the right place in order to create the effect that is going to amaze you. What changes with every single performance you do in front of one people, one person or 10 is the audience. They are all going to react differently. You know, you'll get gobby people, some people are amazed, some people who want to interfere, everything absolutely everything and so you have to learn to be able to control your process but also roll with the punches that the audience gets because you're trying to the goal is to make a fun experience for everybody involved so yeah i got into magic because of the neuroscience side of it but then it became a public speaking skill development so there you go practice yeah amazing all right so becoming a magician helping speaking i love it well Andy, I truly enjoyed our conversation. Unfortunately, our time has run out. So please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. You can find me on Twitter, A Cotgreave, A-C-O-T-G-R-E-A-V-E. I'm on LinkedIn, Andy Cotgreave. I have a newsletter, the Sweet Spot newsletter, where I try and find interesting tangential stories about the world of data. You can find a link to that on my Twitter profile. And I'm sure we'll be able to put a link somewhere in the notes. Perfect. And all of the links, all of the resources, books, everything we talked about today will be available on the show notes page for this episode. Well, Andy, it was such an honor as a longtime fan, and I, I really enjoyed this. And it was great to kind of take your lens of experience with dashboards, but also show about what can be done with presentations too. So I want to just thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And I really hope our paths cross again. I hope so too. Thanks for having me and uh, congratulations on the new book. Excited to see <laughs> Thank that you. come out. Yeah, welcome. <laughs>
I always respond to the ones that have really nice notes attached to them. So I would love to connect there. And please, 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 if you like what you've heard and you're not already subscribed to the show, just go to the main show page on your iTunes or your phone and hit that subscribe button. It's on Spotify too. Just hit that subscribe and then please also leave a rating and review because they're so appreciated. They really help affect the rankings of the show. They help make sure I can keep the show going and they help get the information out to other practitioners like yourself. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration, which is by David McCandless of Information is Beautiful fame. And it's a really simple one. It says, data is the new oil. No, data is the new soil. So here's my take. I love the simplicity of this quote because it really makes you think. What I think it means is that it isn't the numbers and the digits that inspire and motivate Data is the soil in which ideas and insights are planted to grow into plants of progress. So I'm so honored to be on this journey with you to become the master gardeners of insight and change for your organizations and clients and customers. Don't forget to take my new assessment and find out what's stopping you from getting the glory and recognition and rewards you deserve from presenting data impactfully. So get on over to leahpika.com slash assessment if you haven't already. And that's it for today. Keep rocking that data dashboard dance floor, guys. Stay well, stay safe, and namaste.